Hi everyone, Sam here. Thank you so much for listening to The Policy Dispatch. Before we dive in, if you want to enjoy premium access to the podcast and want to read or listen to the unmissable and informative journalism from Foresight Climate and Energy, make sure to subscribe. You can try us for 30 days for less than one euro a day, which will give you access to our website and app. Just follow the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe to find out more. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of The Policy Dispatch. I'm your host, Sam Morgan, your guide through the fascinating world of the energy transition. In this episode, we're going to be jetting off to the other side of the planet, if you're listening to this in Europe anyway, as we delve into and examine what New Zealand, or Aotearoa, is doing to make its energy cleaner and its economy greener. Famous for its beautiful scenery, remote location, magical ring quests, all-conquering rugby team, and unique wildlife, New Zealand is presented with a number of energy transition challenges that are both familiar and alien to you listeners in the Northern Hemisphere. In order to learn more about what the country is doing to address its climate and energy challenges, I was lucky enough to sit down with Dr. Christina Hood, an internationally recognised expert in climate change, energy and carbon markets. Christina previously headed the International Energy Agency's Climate Change Unit and is now head of climate policy at Compass Climate. Before we get cracking, it's time for the Policy Dispatch quiz question. This week I'm asking you, how many Rugby World Cups has New Zealand won? Just kidding, as a proud Welshman, I would never remind myself or any of my compatriots out there of such a depressing statistic. Instead, try this one on for size. What sector is responsible for 51% of New Zealand's greenhouse gas output? Is it A, electricity, B, transport, C, agriculture, or D, buildings? The answer comes up in the show, but stick around until the end to find out if you're right or not. Uh, So, Christina, uh, thank you so much for joining me today uh, for this episode of the Policy Dispatch from Foresight. Um, I was so happy that we could make the time zone differences work between us, and I'm I'm really looking forward to hearing more uh, about what New Zealand is doing on climate and energy. Yeah, you're welcome. uh, I I would say good evening, but I guess it's good morning for you. Yeah. Good day. <laughs> um, I mean, perhaps we could start off a little bit more generally, perhaps on on where New Zealand stands on like policies and targets. Um, what can you tell us about um, what the big headline targets, for example, that New Zealand is working towards? Is there a net zero milestone and on the horizon, for example, um, or is there something else that is um, a part of the regulatory system? Yeah, we have we have a pretty complicated. Um, are probably actually an unhelpfully complicated set of targets because they've just because of the history of how they've layered on top of one another over time, which is what happens. You know, you take mm-hmm. one step and then you get overtaken and so on. Um, the the heart of it is probably the place to start is probably that we have put in place since 2019 a domestic emissions budgets framework in law, so very much modelling the UK's um, climate law approach of having mm-hmm. five-year budgets that step down towards a 2050 target. And that has that is the sort of just getting up and running. Our first emissions budget runs until 2025, mm-hmm. and the first three budgets have been set until 2035. So we're really only getting to you know, kind of the first check-in reporting on how we're going with the first budget next mm-hmm. year. So it's it's very early days to kind of see how that 
um, is running, but it has definitely um, driven a lot of action in government to think about, you know, what is the set of policies that you need to be on track towards that. Having a, a legal obligation really kind mm-hmm. of focused the mind. And that um, legislation was passed essentially on a unanimous basis across Parliament, which was really important. It took the mm-hmm. government kind of two years of negotiating to get everyone on board, but um, that hopefully means that it has some some longevity to it, um, mm-hmm. and that's important. We have a we have an election coming up here in about six weeks, so um, everyone is thinking about what does political potentially political change or uncertainty mean, and what might be locked in. Mm-hmm. So that's um, kind of the heart of it. But there's a probably for a, you know European audience a, a pretty interesting difference to. Uh, what the 2050 target is, because New Zealand in its domestic law has adopted a split gas target. So they have taken very literally the IPCC advice, which says that we need to be net zero for CO2 Mm -hmm. and we need a deep reduction in other gases. So in the short-lived gases, if you actually go and look at the IPCC's reports, you need they, they don't need to be net zero. There's just a a deep reduction, and that's partly to do with it's to do with the, that they have a short lifetime. So, mm-hmm. if you kind of emit on an on a small amount on an ongoing basis, it's not making warming any worse. It's just kind of replacing itself in the atmosphere, and there's a sort of a constant level of warming. So, mm-hmm. so our legislation actually has two targets. So there's a net zero target. Uh, sorry, so there's a reduction target for biogenic methane which is agricultural emissions and waste. Mm -hmm. And then there's a net zero target for everything else. Mm -hmm. And um, so while I've given you the explanation, which is the high-minded scientific one, there's also a very practical reason for that, which is that the biogenic agricultural methane is nearly half of New Zealand's greenhouse gases. So meeting a net zero target for all gases would be extraordinarily uh, difficult mm-hmm. in the New Zealand context. If you, it's like the methane is not a something to think about later. It really is the biggest single share of, of our emissions. If you're comparing on that. that, that leads me on nicely to my my next question. I guess is where are the emissions coming from? So you mm. said you know half of them are coming from biogenic and agriculture, for example. But then where's the yeah. other half coming from? Well, like like most um, like most most countries, you know, fossil fuels essentially. So <laughs> so there's the biogenic methane, but there's also a big chunk of nitrous oxide as well, also from from livestock. Um, mm. Within fossil fuels, um, transport, like many countries, is the biggest challenge. We already have an electricity system that's, you know, 85 to sometimes 90% um, fossil free, depending on how much it rains, because we're quite mm-hmm. hydro dependent. Um, and we're an island a long way from anywhere, so there's no transmission lines to bring electricity in or out. So, you know, managing mm-hmm. that supply uncertainty is a, definitely a challenge. So there's not much to give in electricity, although there's a little bit, but electrification of transport and of um, all the other end uses using the renewable electricity is really the the path forward mm-hmm. in the rest of the economy. You mentioned um, transport, and this seems to be like a bone of contention in other countries. You know, Is aviation and shipping included in New Zealand's emissions counting? Is it the same as the UK in that case? Or yeah, so the, the legislation allows for it to be brought in to mm-hmm. the 
domestic budgets. And um, like the UK, we have an independent commission that provides advice and they have just kicked off a process of asking that very question, should international aviation and shipping be brought into our domestic targets? Um, mm-hmm. That's obviously a pretty big deal for a country like New Zealand. It's hard to get here without taking a very long plane flight. Uh, mm-hmm. So international aviation is a, you know, a bigger share than it would be for many countries. But um, there is actually, you know, it's, it's pretty interesting. So the tourism industry did a strategy document and they – recommended that it be brought in to our net zero target and our emissions trading system because they recognise that the future of international tourism is going to demand that emissions are taken responsibility for. Mm -hmm. That's super interesting that um, it's an industry you would expect to maybe fight that kind of thing tooth and nail, I guess. Um, You you mentioned the power sector. It's, you know, doing pretty well compared to other countries. Um, Lots of hydro to call upon. Mm -hmm. Um, I saw this news a couple of weeks ago where New Zealand wants to be, you know, one of the first countries to be 100% green for its power grid. Um, as you said, that that isn't going to be so much of a challenge, perhaps, or, or is it going to be quite difficult to get that final 10%, 15%? And, and how do you think they will actually do it? It's hard um, for different reasons than in some other countries. So our mm. challenge is not peak demand um, or variability of you know wind from this week to next week or whatever. Our, our challenge is interseasonal, um, the mismatch between supply and demand between seasons because mm-hmm. we get most of the water flowing into the hydro system in the summer. You get a lot of mm-hmm. snow melt and so on um, running down the rivers. And most of our demand, we're um, you know far enough away from the tropics that that our highest demand peaks are in the winter. So it's winter heating, um, winter evenings when it's dark and cold is when the peak demand is. So it's difficult to balance that with adding solar, um, and you know that there's the the hydro has a natural mismatch, although there is storage in the lakes that can help. So um, and then. Um, because it's weather dependent, there's this phenomenon where every five years or so, it just doesn't rain as much. And you need a whole bunch of dispatchable, either dispatchable generation or demand response or storage of some sort. And it can be storage of fuels, it can be storage, you know, storage of different things to make up that shortfall in the hydro. So that that is going to be the biggest challenge. And that's where... There is a really lively debate going on, for example, about whether New Zealand should build um, a, a big pumped storage hydro uh, dam that would, mm-hmm. whose principal function would be storage for dry years. So when it doesn't rain as much, you've got this backup of hydro storage that could be used. Mm-hmm. But that's a super expensive option, and so that you know everyone is now looking around to say, well, could we, you know, are there ten or a hundred smaller things that add up to give the same outcome? Um, of that kind of um, distributed storage and or demand response to to make that up. So it's not, I mean, we have absolutely abundant wind resources. We've barely started to get into the solar game, um, although there's, you know, great resource. Uh, There's potential for offshore wind. We have geothermal. We have all this hydro. You know, there is absolutely no shortage of potential for renewables. the block is, as I said, it's just that last little managing supply security in the dry winters that's that's mm-hmm. the big challenge. I presume then that because you do have 
so many of these options, you know, ready to sort of go so long as it gets the right policies and, and everything that there isn't a sort of discussion around whether or not New Zealand should have nuclear or something like that. Um, renewables have been built here for at least the last decade unsubsidized. So wind mm. has been has just been built by the commercial generators as yep. wind and geothermal are the two main things that have been being built on a commercial basis as the next cab off the rank. So there really isn't any discussion. It's just a, you know, well, that's the cheapest thing to do. Let's do it. Yeah. Let's do it in a lot of it and then uh, we can uh, yeah, get that final and, 10%. And there's, uh, yeah, and there's also challenges around the transmission system because if we are going mm-hmm. to electrify, you know, transport and some of the industrial commercial end uses and homes and so on, there is going to have to be a pretty big strengthening of the transmission and distribution systems mm-hmm. and that both the money and the timeline for that might also be a challenge. Mm-hmm. Does New Zealand have, um, you know, the same kind of problems that other countries seem to have with, you know, permitting the kind of the nuts and bolts of, of getting these kind of projects off the ground? I mean, I, I just assume that, you know, because first thing that you think of with New Zealand are the, the beautiful vistas. And of course, we wouldn't want to spoil that with wind turbines and yeah, you know, the, usual, the usual nimbyism. It's, sort it's of. probably similar to anywhere else, to be honest. Mm. Um, it's, you know, we have a bunch of wind in, um, you know, beautiful places, but some of the most um, spectacular landscapes have had um, developments turned down for that reason. So there is a... Mm sort of a sentiment of, okay, what's where is the, the right place for it? And having, you know, a lot of potential helps in that regard. But um, the and, – and again, there's a big debate around planning frameworks. The government has just completely um, overhauled our whole planning system and that legislation has literally just gone through in the last couple of weeks. So mm-hmm. – um, it's to improve sort of, it or to, to uh, no no to, yeah. to try and kind of streamline it and to at the same time get better environmental outcomes without okay. having processes drawn out for years and years in the courts mm-hmm. and so on but you know we'll see what happens that's one of these things that's up 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 for grabs in the election essentially with different parties mm-hmm. saying they'll do different things so we'll have to wait and see Hi everyone, Sam here again. Just wanted to remind you and maybe your colleagues as well that premium access to the pod and Foresight's brilliant journalism is just a click away. Try our subscription for 30 days for just €29. That gives you access to our website and audio app. Go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes. Now back to the show. If we sort of get into a bit of the more, you know, finer nitty gritty of energy policies in New Zealand, um, you've got an emissions trading system. We do. Maybe yeah. you could tell me a little bit about that. Is it similar to like the use one? Is it a little bit different? What does it cover? It's How is it going? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's going better than it was a few months ago, I guess is, uh-huh. uh, you know, my, my immediate reaction to that. Um, I was part of um, supporting a group called Lawyers for Climate Action who actually took the government to court to try and strengthen the ETS because they had made some decisions that undermined mm-hmm. undermine it by allowing too many permits in. And we um, we won that. And so um, it has been tightened up again a bit, which is great. But mm-hmm. the New Zealand ETS is uh, quite a bit different, actually, than the EU one. So it was set up in the days of the Kyoto Protocol. Mm-hmm. And so similar timing. But it was set up almost like as a Kyoto compliance mechanism. So it is designed around net emissions, not 
gross emissions. So the mm-hmm. idea was that we have a national target for net emissions, so your emissions minus your forestry removals. So if that got mapped down into companies in New Zealand, that would be fine because our national target would be met. You know, um, And you know they also had, at the time, access to the international Kyoto market. Um, so uh, foresters can earn credits from corresponding to the carbon that gets sequestered in trees post-1990 forests as they're growing and emitters can use those in an unlimited amount in the ETS to to meet their obligations. So there's a certain number of units that are auctioned by the government. There's some that are given out for free to trade-exposed companies just like in the mm-hmm. EU, but they also have access to to forestry units. And um, so that's the, the very biggest difference. And mm-hmm. um, New Zealanders, it's about the same size as the UK and it has a population of about 5 million people. So it's much less densely populated. There's quite a lot of farmland, which is why we, half our emissions are from agriculture. But there's a bunch of that farmland is quite actually quite marginal and it's land that should probably never have been deforested when Europeans mm. came to New Zealand and um, is really suitable for putting back into trees. So the cost of land conversion to forestry is quite a lot lower than the cost of emission reductions in industry and transport and so on. So the history of right. our ETS so far has mm. been that it has been a system that has incentivized um, tree planting, essentially, mm-hmm. um, and that has been used to meet obligations rather than emission reductions. And so this is a the biggest debate in our ETS right now is whether that should change, whether we try and um, kind of put a wedge between those two and have a separate treatment of forestry removals and emission reductions. Mm-hmm. Um, the current government has said that they want to prioritise uh, emission reductions more mm-hmm. in a slightly vague way of not saying by exactly how much because you know mm-hmm. we still have net zero targets so it's still net that matters um, and the opposition has is a little bit more um, oh well no it's it's you know don't don't mess with something if it's not broken and um, right. let it run so that's one that's um, yeah on everyone's minds is, is how that's mm-hmm. going to develop I mean, would you say that the, the, the New Zealand ETS is kind of the, like the, the flagship climate policy that kind of underpins everything like it is in Europe or is it a little bit more, you know, an add-on to what people no, are No, it's doing? probably even more so, even more so than in mm. Europe, to be honest. Um, for quite a long time, it was the only main policy. It's really only mm-hmm. in the last few years once we, we got these this emissions budget framework and legislation that there really has been serious attention to, oh, okay, what are the other policies that we should be doing that mm-hmm. supplement price and make things work better together as a package? So we have our first vehicle incentives policies only in the last couple of years do we have a fee bait for electric vehicles. Only in the last couple of years do we have um, import. There are no cars manufactured in New Zealand. They're all imported. And they've brought in a um, emission standard for the aggregate fleet that comes across the border. And that's new. That's only happened in the last couple of years. It's like all these things mm-hmm. that you would think would have been done 20 years ago are just just getting going. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
as I was thinking about other things that perhaps, you know, I could try and uh, compare the two, you know, the Europe and New Zealand. And this other one was this um, carbon border adjustment mechanism mm. that the EU wants to roll out. I think it's starting in October, you know, like a soft kind of opening. Um, given that New Zealand is an island on the other side of the world, set of islands on the other side of the world. Is that kind of policy? Is there any kind of debate about that, about, you know, managing the, the carbon that comes in at the border? Or yeah, is it- so we've we, – no, absolutely. Um, we have uh, up until now had a similar – like similar to most ETSs, had a framework of free allocation to trade-exposed mm-hmm. industry, which essentially subsidises them to continue to do what they're doing now. It's a protection mm-hmm. for the status quo, more or less, even more in our, the way we do it than in, in the EU. Um and it's been interesting because a lot of these companies now are actually at the point where they do want to make decarbonisation investments and they want a path forward and they want to think about, okay, how do we get to that future? And that um, subsidy framework actually acts against that. It's a barrier because it, you know, the high emissions activity is subsidised but the low emissions one isn't. So they would lose all of their free allocation. So, there's, so there is, I think this is one of the issues that's going to be debated over the next two or three years, and I really would not be surprised at all if we end up um, where the EU is around 2030-ish. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, in terms of like when New Zealand is in the region with the other countries that are you know in that part of the world, Australia, Indonesia, the Pacific Islands, is there any kind of you know regional collaboration there on energy and climate? You know, where the standards have aligned, or you know, the, the cross-channel um, cables to share renewable energy that kind of thing or you know projects for that or is it very much you know new zealand is there by itself and everyone else does what they want and we'll do our energy policy yeah. and that's that so we're we're physically too far away to um to run a cable mm-hmm. I, I can't remember the 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 distance but i remember thinking you know looking up it up one time and it being something like the distance from paris to moscow or something like that from mm-hmm. new zealand to australia it's like we're really Further away from yeah. them than, than you might think, um, but New Zealand is incredibly trade connected, and um, so the kind of multilateral and is a small player. So multilateralism really matters to us. We can't go our own way and dominate things, and our internal market is not, um, you know, not enough. So there are definitely lots of um, alliances through. Lots of different groupings. So, um, I mean, even some of the traditional regional groupings, you know, APEC and so on, have Mm -hmm. energy and climate action associated with them. Um, One of the ones which is a little bit on the horizon um, and the government hasn't quite taken the plunge yet is that um, I talked about our domestic budgets and law, but New Zealand's Paris Agreement target is actually quite a bit more ambitious than those that domestic pathway. So it was uh-huh. taken as kind of as a responsibility target with the idea that some of it would be met domestically and some would be met internationally through um, Article 6 Paris Agreement, mm-hmm. carbon markets. And so the government definitely has a desire to, to try and use partnerships within the region um, to realise that, but that's um, kind of still work ahead of them. They've been pretty slow uh-huh. to, to get moving on that. Mm-hmm. 
uh, I asked about the the cable because I always think of these, uh, you know, from Morocco to the UK and and this kind of thing where there's there's no distance uh, long enough to uh, put a cable between two things, but inevitably never um, pans out. Um, mm. If we if we're sort of talking about New Zealand society and you know all of these policies and targets kind of hinge on whether or not people accept them or not. Um, in Europe, you see quite a high level of realization that you know green transition has to happen and a majority actually thinks it needs to speed up do you see a similar situation in new zealand as well or is there a little bit more um hesitance to really turbocharge these kind of policies i think like in a lot of countries there's a lot of um soft support and concern you know concern about Mm. climate change especially with what we see happening in the world now and um, soft support for, you know, you know, we need to do something. I mean, I guess I'm just reflecting on the election campaign that we're in right now, and um, neither of the really big major parties is going hard on climate action as a no. as a leading thing. And um, mm. you know, that's polit- politicians' job is to understand where the the electorate is, and that's their assessment, I guess, of where things are. So that's a little. Um, Mm-hmm. A little disappointing. Um, there's obviously New Zealand specific complications around the agriculture sector um, mm-hmm. because it's it's half of our emissions, but it's also its own community, and it's about um, you know rural communities and rapid change in land use and um, tension between forestry interests and pastoral farming interests, and so on. And so there's um, that definitely plays into the um, you know, the public acceptability and the politics as well, where you stand with, you know, there is, there's starting to become quite a sharp divide socially between those who are saying, look, we're the most efficient farmers in the world, we're helping to feed the world, um, and those who are saying, you're half of our emissions, you're not pulling your weight, you know, you need to be, you know, you need to step up. And the... Um, the kind of touch point for this is that the government's been working on um, a pricing mechanism for the agriculture sector. And I know that in Europe, the consultations on this kind of ideas are just getting started. Um, the negotiations in New Zealand have been it has been going on for years. Agriculture, I think, was first supposed to enter our ETS in 2013. Um and it's been kicked back and kicked back and kicked back. And then the, the current um, discussions are around setting up an alternative system outside the ETS that would be about meeting that separate um, agricultural emissions target. Mm-hmm. Mostly through, it's, it's almost like a levy and subsidy scheme rather than an ETS as such to help subsidise the implementation of on-farm measures that reduce emissions. Mm-hmm. And but even that is is extremely contentious and is disputed by the parties and um, mm-hmm. the upcoming Any election. Change. Yeah, yeah. So that's yeah. that may um, push forward after the election, or it may get knocked back until twenty thirty, depending on what happens. Yeah, it's rapidly running out of time for a lot of these things. Um, well, we said about the power sector and and how there is this, I guess, aspiration at the moment target to be a hundred percent. Um, green power by is there a, is there a date for that yet or it's just we want to do this? Well, it's moved around a bit. It's sometimes twenty thirty mm. and sometimes twenty thirty five, and it's you know if you read the fine print, it's a hundred percent in a normal hydrological year, um, uh-huh. which gets you around that that dry winter question. That aspiration is there, but I wouldn't say it's the 
the main driver because, I mean, emissions from the power sector are already quite low mm-hmm. and that last little bit is quite tough. Yeah. I was just going to say that, you know, in, in the scenario where New Zealand, say, does achieve this by 2030 and obviously that would be something that the government would be very proud of and sort of tout internationally, whether it's at climate summits or in the news or whatever. Do you think that that could have some sort of, you know, um, leveraging effect on other countries where you say, oh, you know, New Zealand's done it and New Zealand is, you know, often a country that people hold up to be, you know, and a, a very nice place that we should replicate in some way or yeah, whatever? No, or do you think that, that maybe? No, I think that, I think that, that, Stuff really does help. I mean, I worked at mm. the International Energy Agency for a number of years and and observed countries looking at what each other did and saying, "Oh, mm. wow, I could do that too." That definitely, that definitely happens. Um, you know, we in New Zealand have looked to other countries around transport policies, and it's like, "Oh, wow, why can't we do this? Why can't we have congestion mm-hmm. pricing? Why couldn't we do?" Um, this or that and I think other countries are looking to us on the agriculture side to some extent of like oh, how, how on earth do you solve that problem mm-hmm. if you solve it then it probably is kind of an easier challenge for other countries then to maybe think oh well maybe agriculture isn't this horrible beast that we can't do anything about we can actually make some progress there yeah well it's been um I mean, if it's only 5 or 10% of your emissions, it's easy to kind of just leave it on the shelf and say, we'll come to that later. But when it's half mm-hmm. of your emissions, you kind of kind of don't have a choice but to face up to it. You, you mentioned earlier about how New Zealand has this, um, you know, a, a version of the Climate Change Committee like they have in the UK that advises on policy. Um, the EU's recently set up this advisory one that I think sort of mirrors that to an extent, has a little bit less legal clout, I guess. Um where does New Zealand fit into the discussion? Is it kind of just a device that the government can kind of, you know, put on the shelf and ignore, or is it a little bit more, no, we have, you know, made these recommendations, you need to do something about it? It's kind of just advice, but it's sort of from the bully pulpit kind of in a way, you know, it's sort of, yeah. um, so the, they're, they're a body that's set up under our Zero Carbon Act, which mirrored the UK mm-hmm. legislation. They provide advice on the emissions budgets the government doesn't have to take that advice, but if they diverge from it, they have to say why they have. So there's sort of a an assumption built in that, you know, that's the default. Um, they provide advice on ETS settings, which is um, something that's been, you know, interesting and was part of, you know, they provided some advice that the um, auction volumes needed to be pulled back quite a lot. And that was the one that, we, that the government... Um, balked on and said, oh, no, actually, we're not. And um, But it turned out in the, the way that the law is written, that actually did have some teeth. So it's, uh, you know, that was an interesting one. But it wasn't that there's no requirement to follow the commission's advice, but if the government's going to diverge from it, they've got to have a really good reason for it. And they didn't mm-hmm. have a good reason for it besides not wanting to, essentially. Mm-hmm. It's advisory, but it has kind of a strength behind it. And part of that strength is because the legislation was passed on a bipartisan basis. So there is a kind of a buy-in, at least for now, to the process and Mm -hmm. a sense of, oh, yes, we all all believe in this process. They're the expert body. So hopefully Mm -hmm. that that will persist. Yeah, make hay while that sun shines before people start uh, getting different ideas about things. I always try to ask people the same question towards the end is, is about optimism, you know, um, 
we've talked about sort of the challenges that New Zealand has and also, you know, where there needs to be improvements. Um, when you look at the trend of where things are going, whether it be emissions and public perception and what the government wants to do, what the election is going to maybe throw up when it, you know, the result is known. Are you optimistic about where New Zealand is going on climate and energy policies or do you think it's kind of the status quo is going to keep going for a little bit too long? Well, both. I mean, it's like, no, it's, it's always a, it depends answer to that, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, depends on what know, day it is. Uh, <laughs> uh, our emissions, our gross emissions are only just starting to bend downwards. They are only just declining for the very first time ever. Now, part of that is we've got a quite rapidly growing population. So there's just mm-hmm. more people and more emissions. Um, and it's partly because we've, as I mentioned before, been using forestry to meet our obligations for a long time and not actually tackling the underlying emissions. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is now starting to turn, and that's a really encouraging and promising thing. But mm-hmm. people here, because of that history of using so much forestry, just do not have a grasp of the rate of change that is needed to get off fossil fuels. When you look at the IEA's net zero energy scenario and the IPCC scenarios where you need a 90% reduction in actual emissions, um, mm-hmm. that's not the way people think here um, and that they just haven't had to kind of confront that. So we've kind of got some of that battle still ahead of us. Mm-hmm. One of the things though on the forestry plus side that I am excited about is that, you know, let's be positive and assume that we do get emissions down and we now kind of take ourselves beyond 2050 into that world where we need to be net negative. Mm -hmm. Um, New Zealand has a lot of land that can be reforested in native forests. So this is not the kind of plantations that are a lot of the forestry at, at present and that has the potential for you know, huge, you know, biodiversity improvements. And um, so there's kind of this vision forming among some groups at least of saying, well, maybe this is a big part of our solution. It's like we have a lot of land that's in agriculture, but we the other flip side of that is that some of this land we can reforest and bring back, you know, the native um, wildlife and at the same time mm-hmm. be providing a carbon sink that not only – undoes some of our historical contribution to warming through fossil fuels and through deforestation, but could potentially be a service to other countries who are looking for that. Well, uh, several birds with one stone, I guess. But uh, we're giving the birds a home. Hopefully not too many birds. So New Zealand has no um, native mammals. So our Mm. our birds are our treasured wildlife here. So yeah, no stones, thanks. The lovely kiwi, Yeah. yeah. Christina, thank you so much for the chat today. It's been really interesting to learn more about New Zealand, especially how your ETS works. I, I, I just thought it was like a smaller version of the EU's one, but to learn about how it, you know, it's it's a completely different mm. beast. Basically, is uh, is very interesting. Um, so yeah, really, thank you for for joining me today. No, you're welcome. Fascinating stuff from Christina today. As we've learned, New Zealand has a lot of energy transition challenges that many other developed countries are also trying to tackle, but there are also problems that are somewhat unique to it, given its geography and economy. Now, before the show, I asked you what sector of New Zealand's economy is responsible for more than half of its greenhouse gas output, electricity, transport, agriculture or buildings. Keen listeners will have heard that the correct answer is agriculture. 
That's including forestry and fishing, according to official government emission accounting. For the rugby heads among you, at time of recording, the All Blacks had won three World Cups. I confidently predict that they will lose to Wales for the first time since 1953 at the ongoing World Cup in France. Hopefully. Maybe. That's it for this week's edition of The Dispatch. Do check out foresightdk.com for our other podcasts, as well as our in-depth journalism. If you've got a taste for Antipodean energy stories, there are not one, but two episodes of The Dispatch and What Matters on Australia available now. Thank you for tuning in, and I'll see you next time for another look at the fascinating world of the energy transition. Energy transition.